Well, it is uh, great to see all of you here this morning at church. Uh, wonderful to see all of your lovely, smiling faces. But my question is, what on earth are you doing here? What on earth are you doing here? I mean, it is Sunday morning. Half of Australia is still tucked up in bed or, you know, enjoying a leisurely Father's Day breakfast. So what on earth are you doing here? Now, of course, I know what you're doing here. That's obvious. I can see that on the uh, service program here. But, but why are you here doing these things? After all, surely you can do most of them at home by yourself. I mean, look, what, what have we got here? Um, Bible talk. Bible talk. I mean, you can listen to the sermon online at home by yourself, can't you? All right. What about announcements? Now, I am sure that you all already, you know, pour endlessly, tirelessly over the weekly email when it's sent out on a Thursday. Praying and reading the Bible. I hope we're all doing that by ourselves at home. Uh, morning tea. I'm pretty sure that most of us would have something in the pantry at home, right? Singing. Well, that's what showers were invented for, isn't it? Singing. Yeah, we can pretty much do all of these things by ourselves at home. So let me ask again, what on earth are you doing here today? Now, I'm sure there are a number of answers to that question, but this morning we're going to have a look at what God has to say in his word. If you don't already have a Bible open in front of you, can I encourage you to grab one now and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. It's page 1871 of the Church Bibles, Hebrews chapter 10. I'm sure you remember that this book has been written by an unknown author to a group of Jewish or Hebrew Christians. Uh, they've been facing all sorts of trials for their faith, in particular uh, persecution. And they've been toying with the idea of giving up on Jesus and going back to their old Jewish lives. But over the last few weeks, we've heard the author saying time and time again, why sticking with Jesus is worth it. And it's that argument that he brings to a close today. And it begins by pointing out that the Old Testament Jewish sacrifices could never take away sins. That they were only a, a shadow of Jesus' true sacrifice. And just like a, a shadow is you know, powerless to do anything, well, so too these Old Testament sacrifices were powerless to take away sin. That's why they were repeated endlessly, over and over again. Because even if they did cleanse you, as soon as you'd finished sacrificing your, your bull or your sheep or your goat, well, you'd sin again. And so you'd need to sacrifice again. In fact, rather than taking away your sins, those sacrifices were a constant reminder of your never-ending guilt. Here, read with me from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. Chapter 10, verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have, have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible 
for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so you see, the Old Testament sacrifices could never take away sins. They were just a shadow. What was needed was the reality, Jesus. Not that this is some new thought for the writer of Hebrews. Now, even the Old Testament itself offered the same critique on these sacrifices. Uh, We see that as the writer goes on to quote Psalm 40, uh, putting it on the lips of Jesus himself, uh, saying how God's will for his people was not ultimately found in these endless sacrifices, but rather in the sacrifice of Christ's body. Because only through his sacrifice have God's people actually been made holy. Their Their sins dealt with once and for all. Here, read with me from verse 5. Verse 5. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, and this is Psalm 40, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second, and by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So Jesus willingly came into the world in obedience to his Father to do what the Old Testament sacrifices couldn't. He died as the perfect sacrifice, bringing true forgiveness to the people of God once and for all. And as we know, after Jesus offered himself on the cross, he rose again and then he ascended to heaven. And what did he do next? Well, he sat down. He sat down. Because unlike the Old Testament priests, his sacrificial work was finished. In fact, he sat in the highest place of honour at the right hand of God the Father, having completed the task he'd been given. And from there he will reign until the day he, he rises again to wipe out all of God's enemies, all who've rejected his offer of forgiveness. But for those who put their trust in Jesus... Well, they are made perfect forever through his sacrifice. And so they receive all the benefits of the new covenant, renewed uh, hearts and minds, uh, and the assurance that all of their sin has been paid for once and for all. Here, read with me from verse 11. Verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. 
I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. And so you see where the Old Testament sacrifices were nothing but a reminder of sins, Jesus' sacrifice means that they are remembered no more. Not that God's got a poor memory, it just means that he will never again hold our sins against us. It is an extraordinary position these Hebrew Christians find themselves in, isn't it? In Christ, they have found true forgiveness. No need to live in constant guilt, beating themselves up about their sin. They have been made holy and so fit to be in the presence of the holy God, both now and eternally. Why? Because Jesus is their perfect once-for-all sacrifice and their perfect job-done priest. So if that's the case, I'm sure you can see why these Hebrew Christians should never dream of ditching Jesus to go back to their old Jewish lives, no matter how hard life gets. Instead, what should they do? Well, the writer concludes this passage with three exhortations for these Christians, each of which starts with, with lettuce. I'm not talking about iceberg lettuce or cos lettuce or any other type of lettuce of that sort. I'm talking about lettuce in terms of, you know, in the urging sense. First, he says, let us draw near to God, sincerely and with full assurance. In other words... They should make the most of their new relationship with God. Truly believing that the God of the universe now warmly invites them into his presence. As they pray to him, as they worship him, as they, as they sing to him, God wants them to come near. Because Jesus' sacrifice has washed them clean inside and out and taken away their guilt and fear. Secondly, he says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. In other words, the Hebrew Christians should never lose heart or chuck away their faith as they're tempted to do. Why? Because even if life gets really hard, God has made and will always keep his extraordinary promises to help them now and ultimately to bring them to heaven. He is faithful and so they should hang on to the end no matter what. And thirdly, he says, let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. That is, how they can motivate one another to, to keep living God's way, devoting their whole lives to him. In particular, by coming together regularly, with the purpose of encouraging one another in the knowledge that with each passing day, Jesus' return is closer than ever. Here, read with me these final verses from verse 19. Verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, 
by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see, the day approaching. And that's as far as we're going today. Can you see the writer's point here? Only Jesus provides the once and for all sacrifice that brings forgiveness, makes us holy, takes away our guilt and gives us a, a red carpet welcome to the throne room of God. Of course, these Christians shouldn't chuck it all away. Instead, they should draw near to God, hold unswervingly to their hope and encourage one another to live for him. And so how how does all of this apply to us here today, do you think? What should our response be? Well, of course, friends, for starters, today's passage should remind us Christians of just how wonderfully blessed we are. We who have put our trust in Jesus have had our sins forgiven once and for all. And now our great high priest, Jesus, beckons us into the most holy place, into the presence of God himself. And so now it is our turn to heed the the three exhortations of this passage the three lettuces. What are they again? Well, firstly, let us draw near to God. Let us draw near to God, because, friends, the fact is, He is now our loving Heavenly Father. And He delights in us. That's the fact. So it makes sense to draw near to Him. We can do that in prayer, in song, as we serve him, as we lean on him through every challenge we face, we should draw near to him. But friend, I wonder if that's that's the way it is sometimes for us. I wonder if you ever feel so ashamed of your sin, so so ashamed that you choose to keep your distance from God. You know, You feel so unworthy because of your sin. A bit like Samantha, my blue healer, my dog, when I was growing up. You know, I always knew when Samantha had been naughty, digging in the garden or chewing on somebody's shoe. I always knew. Do you know why? Because I could could see her slinking away in the distance, slinking away, tail between her legs, just not wanting to be seen. But friends, we should never feel like that with God. No, 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 no. Remember, our sin is exactly why Jesus came. To trade his spotless record 
for our sin-stained one. You know it's Satan, don't you? You know it's Satan who loves to remind us of our sin and rub our noses in it. Why? Because the last thing he wants us to do is to draw near to God and enjoy him as we can. So friend, when you are aware of your sin, don't, don't pull away from your loving Heavenly Father, will you? Don't pull away, but rather come to him. Confess your sin to him. Trusting and thankful that it is already paid for. As I, I tell my kids when we confess our sin together, I say, you know what, kids, it's, it's now like God has taken that sin and he has dumped it in a bottomless ocean. And he's put up this sign that says, no fishing allowed. Friends, because of Jesus, God remembers our sins no more. So let's draw near to him. Secondly, let's hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Think for a moment about why you swerve in a car. It's often because you're afraid of hitting something and getting hurt, isn't it? Well, these Christians were afraid of running into persecution. And so they were tempted to veer off God's path to avoid it. But that would have made things so, so much worse for them in the long run. My friend, I wonder what it is that could tempt you to give way to, to fear and swerve off God's path. Perhaps fear of ridicule in, in the office or in the playground. Uh, perhaps fear of upsetting non-Christian relatives. Perhaps fear of missing out on, on what you know, sin claims to offer. Whatever it is, friend, please don't ever trade your sure hope of heaven for anything this world has to offer, will you? Because it is just, it's just not worth it. Rather, hold unswervingly to the hope that you profess. And thirdly, let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. Encouraging one another to stick with Jesus and to live for him. And it's this third lettuce that I want us to spend the most time thinking about this morning. Now, why is it so important that Christians encourage one another, do you think? Why is it? Well, it's because just like the Hebrew Christians, we too will face all kinds of trials and temptations in this world. None of us, not one of us, is strong enough to face them on our own. And of course, central to this idea of spurring one another on is the idea of meeting together. That's what the writer said, isn't it? What did he say? He said, do not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. In fact, since the very early days, Christians have come together in a meeting they call church. And so when we put all these pieces together, we can see the importance of encouraging one another when we come together as a church. Yeah, sure, sure, we come together to hear the sermon and to sing and to pray and to do all these things on the program and hear the fascinating announcements. But rather than doing all of these things at home by ourselves, as we could, we come together here in church, don't we? We do them together. 
Why? Well, for the purpose of encouragement. Friend, do me a favour, would you? Just do, do me a favour. Just have a look around you and, and see who's here today. Like, like, seriously, turn your head, go on. Everybody will do it. Go on. Have a look. Look at, look at the faces that are seated around you. It's got to be better than looking at my face. Have a look around. Who is here today? Have a look at them. Have a look at them. Now, let me ask. Do you realise that you need them? And that they need you? You need them. And they need you. See, I reckon church is a bit like a MASH hospital. You know MASH? You know, mobile Army Service Hospital. You know, a, a hospital that's in the middle of a war zone. Where the soldiers come in wounded and, and battered. And then they get patched up and strengthened and restored to go out and fight some more. The thing is, here in this hospital, we are both the soldiers and the medics. Each one of us. We're all needy and needed. Now, I wonder how that would affect your whole experience of church if you really, truly believed that. Well, for starters, I think it would mean that you would turn up here to church in the first place, right? Uh, surely it makes sense that we'll turn up as often as we can. So let me say, well done for being here today. Thank you for being here today. It is an encouragement that you are here today. But friend, I do have to say that I have noticed a worrying trend here in our church. Where a growing number of people are, for whatever reason choosing to come to church only every second or third week. Now, I know, I know that there are all sorts of pressures out there. There are work commitments and there are sporting commitments and there are the endless children's birthday parties. Oh, my goodness, the children's birthday parties. But, friend, please understand from this passage that you, you need to meet with these people and... And they need you here too. So please, don't get into the habit of missing church, will you? And once again, let me encourage you by saying, well done for being here today. Turning up it is just, turning up regularly, it's just so important. But what else will it mean to put encouragement at, at the heart of everything we do at church? Well, I think it'll also mean not, not just getting here, but getting here on time. What is on time, do you ask? You ask? Well, well, I reckon on time, it's 10 minutes before the actual service starts. So here at the 10.45 service, what's that? So it means being here by 10.35 at the latest. Why? Why? Well, because church is so much more than doing the things listed here on this piece of paper. It's about connecting with people. And getting here before the service starts will allow you to do exactly that. It'll mean that you can actually engage with these people who are seated around you and encourage them. But I think it's important 
to show you the reality of what's happening at the moment. You know, thanks to our electronic check-in system, I recently discovered that you can make a graph showing uh, when it is that people are, are turning up here at church in relation to the start time of each service. So how do you think we're going? How do you think we're going as a church? Maybe we should start with those evening service people, you know, the young people that just can't get their acts together, you know, those people. Let's have a look at and see what they've... So you'll notice this is the time down the side here and you can notice this is the number of people here in church along the um, x-axis. So there's 6.30, that's the time the evening service starts. So what is that showing? It's showing that 67% are here before the service starts. A third are turning up after it started. Those young people. <laughs> what about 9am? How do you think 9am are going? I mean, they're, uh, they're going to wake up nice and early to get to church, don't they? Uh, that would be hard for them. Let's have a look. Well, 45% before the service starts, 55% after it starts. There are more people here after the service starts than before it starts. Coming in after. Oh, I noticed very interesting. Notice the big peak right at the end there. Right before the sermon starts. Interesting, isn't it? Interesting. 10.45 people. <laughs> How do you think we're going as a service? You want to have a look at this? Let, let's have a look. Let's have a look. Yeah, no, it's not rigged. <laughs> there you go. 34% before the service starts and 66% of people coming in afterwards, sort of a slow sort of rise, with another peak right at the end there, just before the sermon starts. Um, that's the reality. Uh, and the thing is, it's not a one-off, it's not a one-off, uh, it's the same every week, and the thing is, rather than being encouraging, you know, it sort of has the opposite effect. Now, I don't think anybody turns up to church going, hmm, how am I going to discourage people today? Nobody does that, nobody sets out to do that. But let me explain why it is discouraging. Uh, for starters, it is a missed opportunity to say hi to people before the service starts, especially to the newcomers who have a tendency to be here on time. But beyond that, think about what else you miss out on if you're late. You miss out on the first few songs of the service. Now, I know that Paul and his music team, they start here super early on a Sunday morning. Uh, why? To practice hard put the effort in. Why? To get things right, to encourage us as we sing songs together of praise to our God and Heavenly Father. But the fact is, when it's time to sing, often less than half of the congregations here, in some services it's the third. And that's discouraging. And then the service leader stands up here and offers us a warm welcome He's probably spent more than an hour preparing. And today I heard the worst dad joke I've heard in my life. <laughs> it was brilliant. It was brilliant. Only a third of people got to hear it or less. 
And then our service leader helps us draw near to God as we confess our sins together. Because that's important as a church family, isn't it? To confess our sins together. But unfortunately, during this time of confession, we've often been distracted by the sounds of people coming in late, trying to find a seat. This is a new redeveloped building, but I tell you what, the floors are still 100 years old. And you can hear the people coming down. And that's why we've now asked our welcoming team to please just shut the doors temporarily, um, just to you know, hold people coming in during the time of confession, because it was, again, it was just so discouraging. And then, we, and then we have the announcements. I mean, who doesn't want to hear the announcements? <laughs> Highlight! <laughs> but would you believe I recently asked somebody after a service if they were coming along to church camp and, and their response was, there's a church camp? What, what, what's this church camp about? What, 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 what's that? I'm like, Lord, please take me now. Just take me now. <laughs> Just... You know, sometimes I wonder, I wonder whether we evangelicals put such a high value on the teaching of God's word, the, the sermon, and rightly so, but by so doing incorrectly devalue everything else in the service. We think that as long as we've heard the sermon, we've done church. Well, evangelical friends, hear what God says here. We're to come together, not just to hear God's word, but to encourage one another. And being habitually late, it, it, it isn't encouraging. It's, it's discouraging. Now, I know that finding a car park in Chatswood can be a real headache, especially for this service. I know that. But here's what I also know. I know that if it was a headache today, it'll be a headache next week as well. And so here's my advice for what it's worth. If you're habitually entering church 20 minutes after the service has started, then next week, in order to be on time, uh, that'll mean what leaving home 30 minutes earlier than this week. Which will no doubt mean, on Saturday night, setting your alarm to wake you up half an hour earlier than this week. Try it. Try it. See what happens. But let me also say, friend, if you happen to find yourself running late for church next week, please, please, please don't turn it into World War III with your family, okay? Don't do that. It's not worth it. And please, please, please don't stay away out of guilt. I'm not trying to guilt you. I, I, I once heard the story of a church that addressed their lateness problem by locking the doors after the service started and, and not opening them again until the service was finished. We will never lock our doors. And you will always be warmly welcomed at whatever time you arrive because we want to be a grace-filled church. We just ask that you please help us as we try to create a culture of arriving 10 minutes before the service starts for the purpose of encouragement. And the last thing I want to say to you is, as needy and needed people, please hang around for morning tea after the service won't you? I, mean, I wonder if you noticed that in this newly developed building, I wonder if you noticed that we've created these two exit doors that go out directly into the courtyard where we have morning tea. Did you know that's on purpose? 
because we think that that's where we can have the kind of conversations that will spur us on to love and good deeds. We think it's that important. Friend, I guarantee you, I guarantee you that some of the people that are sitting around you today, some of those faces you saw just a little while ago, I, I can guarantee you, some of these people are tempted to give up. Some of them have had a harrowing week. Some of them are stressed out to the max. Some of them are worn down with the worries of this world. Some are thinking about just chucking it all in. And the fact is you can make a genuine difference in their lives. So stick around, stick around and find someone to encourage. It's as easy as asking, how was your week? Or what did you get out of that sermon today? Or uh, how can I be praying for you during the week? If you're an introvert, if you're an introvert, look, I I know how daunting it can be to be in a large crowd of people. I, I know the overwhelming feeling of drowning in a sea of faces. I know it. Because I too am an introvert. In fact, after three whole services on Sunday, there's nothing more than I want to do than go home and and curl up in a dark corner somewhere in the fetal position and suck my thumb and rock back and forth. So why do I persevere? Because they pay me, that's right, they pay me. (laughs) But more than that, because I realise that coming to church, it's not just about me. It's about others. It's about each of us doing our part to encourage others to stick with Jesus and to live for him. And so, fellow introverts, here's a tip you can keep in mind. The fact is, you don't have to work the crowd like those buzzed-up extroverts can do. All you've got to do is find one person, one person, go over, introduce yourself if you don't know them. Ask them a couple of questions about themselves. See where it goes. But whether we're introverts or extroverts, we've all got to get over ourselves and seek to meet the needs of others when we come together. Friends, we have such a wonderful, wonderful salvation And the day of Jesus' return is getting closer and closer. And who knows? Maybe God will use you to help one of these people around you today to hold on to their precious salvation till the end. And maybe they'll do that for you too. Let's pray. Our Father, we do praise you for our Saviour, Jesus. Uh, Thank you for his once and for all sacrifice for sins on the cross. Thanks that we undeserving sinners are now made holy, fit to be in your presence forever. In the light of our wonderful salvation, Father, we pray that we'd be a people who keep drawing near to you, who hold unswervingly to the hope that's ours in Christ and who take every opportunity to spur one another on to love and good deeds. Father, thank you for this, our church family. Thank you for each and every person here. 
Please help us to come to church each Sunday with a desire to encourage one another to stick with Jesus to the very end. We long for the day of his return. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus, come. Amen.